Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Podcast, the New Books in Political Science specifically podcast. Today I am joined by Raquel Gates, who is the author of Double Negative, The Black Image and Popular Culture. This book was published by Duke University Press in 2018 and is a fascinating and important study of an understanding of presentations of race and representations of race in popular culture. But I'm going to let Raquel tell us a little bit more about her book and the thesis as we get into our discussion. Right now, I'd like to introduce Raquel and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this fascinating project. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Raquel Gates. I am an assistant professor of cinema and media studies at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. Uh, The way that I uh, came to this project, to be honest, was partly through a frustration and um, a bit of a rant. (laughs) Um, I was feeling a little um, frustrated about how Black texts were getting discussed within the field of film and media studies. And I felt that there tended to be an emphasis on Black images that were deemed sort of quality texts, things like The Wire, um, anything um, with sort of uh, sort of high production quality, but also um, sort of seemingly acceptable representational styles. And for me, as somebody who's really interested in what some might call trashy pop culture, I, I felt that it was um, sort of doing a disservice to some of the really interesting work that was happening in areas that were not being discussed, such as reality television, or even just popular comedies like Coming to America. So With this project, I wanted to, one, sort of delve into that dichotomy between good and bad images a little bit, but then also try to do something a bit more subversive and actually claim what I'm calling negative text um, as um, images that can actually do progressive political work. And, And into that sort of, as you say, claiming the texts themselves that are sometimes dismissed, like reality television. Um, and you you go through a number of different forms of texts throughout the book, but I did want to sort of start out and ask you to talk a little bit about what you mean by the sort of double negative that's the title of the book, um, and that sets up your analytical framework throughout the book that you do such a careful job with explaining in the introduction. Can you talk a little bit about your different interpretations of this kind of negativity and the lens that you're sort of using to interpret popular culture? Sure. Well, the idea of a negative um, comes from something that you hear people say all the time when it comes to representation, whether it's Black representation or representation of any marginalized group, which is that's a, quote, negative representation of you know, whatever the group is. And the idea is that a negative representation sets that group back politically or uh, culturally. Um, and so, you know, the reason, for example, that Flavor Flav is on the cover of the book um, with this really great editorial image uh, by photographer Jesse Froman um, is because I heard that a lot around Flavor Flav when he was on The Flavor of Love on VH1 um, because people said he's just a modern day minstrel and Black people have come so far. Why are we sort of now promoting this really regressive, stereotypical, negative image of a Black man? And for me, um, even though I completely understand those claims, uh, they're, they're faulty for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first of which is that 
I'm not convinced that any particular image is going to rectify hundreds of years of structural oppression. Um, That's the first thing. And the second thing is that when we just sort of dismiss something because it's stereotypical or maybe stereotypical at first glance, we we, we miss thinking about how those texts function, uh, the work that they do in terms of the narrative, in terms of the aesthetics, et cetera. Um, and so it was really important for me to say, all right, well, let's take some of these most derided um, examples from Black popular culture and apply some kind of rigorous critical analysis to them in the same way that we would any other piece of significant film or media studies. And the rigorous critical analysis, as you talk about it in the book, is this understanding of various kinds of sort of negativity. Um, And you also talk about it with regard to the the idea of the photograph, um, the positive image and the negative image. So I'd love for you to explain a little bit about, you know, what you're talking about there. You're not only uh, sort of analyzing these texts in context of, you know, history of racial issues in the United States and so forth, but also this question of the positive. Right. So one of the things that I really try to emphasize in the book and sort of in my general scholarship is that you can't just categorize something because our understanding of what a text is, how it's defined and how it functions, that changes across time. And so for me, it was really important to try to tease out the relationships between texts. So Flavor Flav is a great example of that. Flavor Flav has been doing this exact same thing basically since he's been in the public. Um, when he's the hype man for Public Enemy, he's wearing the big clocks and you know doing all kinds of sort of crazy antics. Uh, and he does the same thing when he's on VH1 um, in um, The Surreal Life and then Strange Love and then Flavor of Love. The difference is the context in which he is presented. And that's what impacts how audiences read him, it becomes acceptable for him to sort of do those things within the context of public enemy because it's seen as serving this larger a sort of good political purpose. But within VH1, and especially on Flavor of Love, it's sort of reduced to just him as a stereotype. And so for me, it's important not to just label Flavor Flav as a quote-unquote negative representation, but to really understand how that shifts depending on the context. Um, in the same way, we might think about films that have gotten dismissed, like uh, there's a bunch of comedies in the 90s, what I call in the book, the sellout comedies, that when people talk about 1990s Black film, they tend to sort of overlook or maybe just forget that those things ever happened, partly because there's such a big emphasis on um, what some might call the hood films from, from that period, Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, Juice. And so in that way, those films get completely overshadowed and sort of erased from critical attention. Um, just by their comparison. And so for me, with the title, I wanted to get at this idea of a negative representation, but I also wanted to get at the idea of the relationality between texts, hence the idea of a double negative. Um, In a photograph, you need a double negative to create a positive image, right? Um, And those things are sort of the polar inverse of each other, but they're completely related. And, and so I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about, or I, I would love for you to explain, sorry, I don't want to force you to do anything, <laughs> I'd love for you to explain a bit about the, the various ways that you're thinking about this. So you have the formal negativity, 
Um, that's um, one of the first chapters, the re- relational ne- negativity that you just mentioned. Um, you have this really impressive chapter, um, sort of thinking about Halle Berry um, and and her sort of role in reality and in and in in film. Um, and then you have you know what you talk about as strategic negativity. Um, and finally, um, you talk about false negativity. Can you explain a little bit about these various um, interpretive understandings of the sort of negativity versus positivity? Sure. One of the things I'm really trying to do in the book is to give attention to particular texts that I think have been overlooked, particularly among scholars. Um, and those fall into, that, that happens for a number of different reasons, which is part of um, the classification system that I, I have in the book. And so the, the first chapter where I talk about coming to America um, as an example of what I'm calling formal negativity is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about how these things work on the formal level, um, as we would say in terms of cinema. And so when coming to America came out, um, it was it was panned by a lot of critics because they said that it was just this sort of boring romantic comedy. Um, and of course, if you talk to anybody who's ever seen Coming to America, no one thinks of this film as a romantic comedy. Um, and the things that people actually remember are the really sort of culturally specific um, parts from from like a black comic tradition, all of the stuff in the barbershop. Um, and the Black Awareness Rally. rally. And so with the concept of formal negativity, I'm interested in films and television shows that um, essentially don't follow the formula for what a film is supposed to do. Um, So for example, um, in sort of a conventional Hollywood film and a romantic comedy, uh, the leads, uh, the lead actors, the biggest actors in the film would occupy the A plot, which is the the romantic part, right? And then the supporting cast would sort of do the the comedic, uh, like throwaway scenes, right? The the, the comic relief um, that gets really complicated with a film like Coming to America because. The leads, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, play the characters in both the A plot and the B plot, which means that in terms of like the rules of cinema, in terms of where um, as an audience our attention is supposed to be directed, this all gets very complicated and very messy. Um, And what I'm trying to argue with Coming to America is that if you sort of follow the conventional rules of what makes a film good or even what makes a film black, um, Coming to America doesn't really meet those criteria, but that the criteria are wrong. That's what I want to argue. Um, And so you get a very different interpretation of what that film is if you shift your lens of analysis. So, so, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, No, I was going to, please. um, No, I was just going to move on to the, to the next type. um, But yeah. So you have, no, you have so I I love the fact that you have this sort of question of the sort of formal negativity mm-hmm. that you see in the Eddie Murphy films, um, and again he's you know a, a particular kind of comedian um, that you also don't usually think about as a sort of romantic lead, um, and so there's a scrambling that's going on in terms of how how the audience, as you note, is supposed to interpret. Um, or experience the narrative. 
Um, the, the next chapter that you talk about is you call it relational negativity. Um, and as you say, this is in contrast to the, the sort of films about the quote hood, um, in the 1990s. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by relational negativity in this context? Sure. So with relational negativity, um, I'm interested in how the sellout films, as I call them, are in they're in direct conversation with the hood films. I mean, one of the things I say in the chapter is it's almost like, you know, if you think about the end of Boys in the Hood, um, where Trey goes off to Morehouse, the, the sellout films sort of pick up like with what happens with his kid. If you could do a little bit of fan fiction around that, you know, what happens when, um, you know, folks have made it out of the hood and then go and uh, become sort of professionally successful. And then there's a whole other set um, of questions and situations that arise as being the black person in sort of the, the world of white corporate America. And that's what the sellout films um, sort of focus on. What was interesting is I had forgotten and how many of those films came out in the 90s. And partly that's yeah. because the 90s were just um, a really amazing decade in terms of the production and distribution of black films. So you get lots of different types of black films anyway. Um, but there are lots of films that are about black people working in corporate America, some of which I talk about in the chapter, things like The Associate and Strictly Business um, and Boomerang to a certain extent and Living Large and True Identity. Um, but again, I wasn't finding a lot of scholarship about those films. Even um, when people sort of commonly just talk about Black film in the 90s, they don't tend to talk about those. They don't seem to come to mind. Um, and part of that for me is thinking about how the Hood films sort of overshadow those other films and, and really come to define that decade and that um, that period of filmmaking. Um a larger explanation for that, I would sort of tie to this idea of authenticity and the ways that Black images, Black film, and Black television are always being judged and assessed based on how authentic they seem to be to people. And, and there's all kinds of problems with who gets defined what is and is not authentic. But in some ways, the Hood films really marketed themselves as authentic menace to society um, on the poster on the film poster says, you know, this is what's real or something to that, that effect. Right. Um, the sellout films are not particularly interested in authenticity. They're interested in certain themes in certain topics. And some of them like true identity um, and also like live in large will actually employ sort of absurdist, um, you know, situations uh, that are clearly not authentic and clearly sort of not, you know, believable in real life, but they're used in service of telling a particular type of story. And, and so you have, I mean, again, you sort of set up this very interesting um, analysis and sort of academic exploration of, I want to say almost forgotten films um, of the nineties that aren't classified yes. in particular ways. Um, but are, are really important if you start to think about like, what is the image that is being presented at that time, um, of African-Americans in the United States in lots of ways. Um, part of this, we part of this consuming. also, sorry, sure. Go ahead. Part of this also for me is trying to 
think about a legacy of black film and television production. In full disclosure, I don't find all of the films from the 90s that I'm writing about in this book particularly good. Um, But I do think that they are noteworthy and significant for some of the issues that they're raising. And, you know, when I said that this book started as a bit of a, a place from a place of frustration, Part of it was because I feel that every few years, maybe every decade, um, a film comes out, a black film comes out, and immediately the public talks about it as if it's the first time that type of film has ever happened or that discussion has ever happened. And so what I'm interested in is looking at these sort of overlooked or these forgotten moments, if for no other reason than to sort of create um, an archive of them, right? Uh, to say that, yeah, this this sort of use of, of horror or use of um, absurd absurdity or surrealism to think about Black identity in a white world there were a number of films that were doing that in the 90s, right? Um, and in some ways, the films that we're seeing now, things like, um, you know, Get Out and Sorry to Bother You, which are fantastic films in their own right, but they're also connected to this larger legacy of form and matters of identity. Yeah, I mean, it's like every time a, a, a woman who's in the front of a movie makes a lot of money, they're like, oh, women go to movies. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, yeah, <laughs> they, they do. <laughs> Imagine that. I, I joke with my <laughs> I joke with my students all the time that it's like every 20 years, Hollywood remembers that black people exist and go to the movies. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like on a cycle every 20 years. Okay. <laughs> well, black people go to the movies, women go to the movies. Right. <laughs> How about that? Um, okay, <laughs> moving on to women yes. in the movies. Um, the next chapter, which I was really fascinated by, in particular, your sort of meta analysis, if I can use that term, of mm-hmm. Halle Berry um, as an actress, as a, an individual who um, has a certain amount of fame and notoriety. Um, who won an Academy Award as a Best Actress, um, not in a supporting role. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about this as circumstantial negativity. And it's a Mm -hmm. kind of complicated analysis that you do around her in particular, but you also position it with regard to other African-American actresses and these questions of sexualization as well. So can you talk to us a little bit about that terminology, circumstantial negativity, and also specifically why you focused on Halle Berry. Sure. Um, my interest in Halle Berry, um, I, I feel like just growing up, I've, I sort of lived through the different phases of her career and really not just her career, but the different phases of her celebrity persona. Um, and I was always struck by these moments where I, I would hear something said about her or hear her discussed in a particular way and have like a very real visceral memory of something she said that was the direct opposite of that. Um, and so, for example, I talk about this in the chapter. I mean, her her biracial identity, um, which is a thing that got discussed a lot uh, during the filming of Queen and after Queen um, and really was sort of used, I, I think, um, to do a little bit of sort of like armchair psychoanalysis on the type of person she was, et cetera, et cetera. But it was in direct uh, contrast to things she had said about her own identity and how she racially identified. And so 
that was sort of my um, the sort of personal interest in sort of Halle Berry and thinking about just the ways that her star text has shifted over time um, and how she's been understood by the public. And for me, the idea of relational um, negative, sorry, sorry, the idea of circumstantial negativity with uh, Halle Berry was my attempt to really get at the power of discourse and the power of intertextuality um, because it, there's a way in which Halle Berry, the persona, is is like a world away from whoever Halle Berry, the person, uh, might be said to be. Not that I know her personally, of course, um, but to sort of see the way that this narrative really picked up steam during particular phases of her career um, and and it seemed as if she was almost sort of powerless to counter the narrative about who she was. I, I thought that was a really fascinating uh, type of case study to tease out in the chapter. And and so in that context, you spend a lot of time sort of talking about the sort of complication of her in the role in Monsters Ball um, yes. that won her the Oscar, um, that she again has this um, very graphic, sex scene that seems to be what everybody pays attention to as opposed to the narrative of the story itself and her inhabiting of the role. Yes. Yes. And go ahead. No, I mean the the interesting thing to me about Monsters Ball is is the ways that the discussion about Monsters Ball are bringing in lots of important historical discussions about the representation of Black women, for instance, um, the hypersexualization of Black women's bodies. All of these really important, absolutely accurate conversations that seem to take on a life of their own that don't always sort of connect back with the the film itself. Um, the other thing that I found really fascinating about Monster's Ball is there's a lot of weight that gets sort of put on Halle Berry's shoulders for that particular representation um, that doesn't take into account things like how the sex scene, sex scene is shot, which is something that I, I talk about um, in, in the film, that it, it's shot in this in this very voyeuristic way. Um, as if you're sort of peeking in on Halle Berry's character and Billy Bob Thornton's character having sex. Um, but we don't talk about the formal qualities or the formal aspects of that film. We talk about Halle Berry as, you know, in the in the Jadakiss song that I referenced as, you know, a, a black woman who let this white man have sex with her, right? Um, as, as if all of the agency is on Halle Berry's shoulders alone. And not the director or the writer's or the narrative, right, or any of right. the other aspects of the construction of the film, that she is an actress inhabiting a role. Or even if that interpretation of her character is accurate based on the rest of the film. Um, you know, the the sex, there's two sex scenes in Monsters Ball. I mean, there's two sex scenes between Halle Berry and Billy Bob Thornton. There's, you know, sex scenes between other characters in the film as well. Um, but even the question of, does that particular scene sort of define the rest of the film, which doesn't seem to be a question um, that we're even asking, right? Um, I think it speaks more to the sort of social, political, cultural forces that give us a framework for how we read that film and how we read that scene. Um, not all of which I think can actually be sort of justified by the film itself. Yeah. And, and, and you also, I mean, you also talk about, you know, sort of Halle Berry's evolution from, um, sort of being cast in African-American specific or African-American majority cast films mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to sort of her, her quote, crossover um, 
to being a sort of um, a star in, you know, James Bond movies um, right. and so forth. And, and so how does that sort of fit into this context of sort of circumstantial negativity and our understanding also of the idea of um, sort of understanding representation mm-hmm. or not? Yeah, sure. I think there's a tendency always to locate agency in in actors and maybe in directors too, right? Um, in ways that ignore that film is a collaborative process, uh, that there is an entire marketing publicity machine um, around film. Um, and for me, it's Halle Bear is a really easy case study in terms of sort of tracing that out. So, you know, when Halle Berry starts her career, she is like the black girl next door. I call her the round the way girl um, in the in the chapter on her. Um, she's always in black cast films. She is the like the the sweet, beautiful, relatable character, you know, like in Boomerang. Right. She's juxtaposed with Robin Givens's character in that film. Um it's really around Queen, the TV miniseries that you see, at least in terms of sort of um, black magazines and then also then going into mainstream white magazines, this shift around the understanding of her identity. Um, when I was doing research for this chapter, I was looking at magazines like Essence and Ebony, but also People and, and other various things to try to find evidence of a discussion of her racial identity before Queen. And it, it just doesn't happen, at least that, that I can find. Um, there is no... Um, discussion of her as being anything other than a black woman, a black actress who's, you know, trying to make it in Hollywood. And it's around Queen that you first start to see discussions of the fact that she has a white mother and that she's biracial. And it's fascinating because it's very clear that it's all marketing for the film where she is playing this biracial character, right? In this sort of tragic mulatto trope of like a Sarah Jane from Imitation of Life. Um, So the discussion of her real life um, starts to become conflated with marketing for this film and for this character. Um, And what I'm arguing in the chapter is she's never really able to sort of like untether those things after that point. She becomes understood as that character from Queen, which has a whole other um, sort of representational history within Hollywood. And, and again, I think, you know, your analysis of her is, is fascinating and helped me to start thinking about, you, you know, these meta conversations about celebrity too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and how any number of individuals are positioned in ways that, again, as you say, they kind of lose the capacity to speak to the reality of who they are, um, which, which happens again to political candidates sort of all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but less so to often, or we don't think about it with regard to actors and actresses, um, particularly from underrepresented groups. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you about reality television. Yes. Um, a, a, a oftentimes considered to be a pleasure, um, that people indulge in. Um, and you talk about how reality television in particular, you have a number of examples and I want you to dive into them are a kind of strategic negativity. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by strategic negativity and which, which in particular um, reality television shows you are exploring? Sure. So 
strategic ne- negativity for me is when the identification of a text as being negative or as I call it in the metaphorical gutter directly enables a type of subversive progressive political discourse. And for me, there's no better example of that than a show like Love and Hip Hop, uh, which I focus on very heavily in this chapter and in lots of other writing because I just am obsessed with the show and adore it unapologetically. Um, But also, you know, the chapter on reality television for me is, yes, about reality television, but it's also a case study for thinking about broader concepts of women and labor and work and the media. And so that's sort of my hope uh, for how people read that chapter um, as being one um, really a strong argument for the possibilities of reality television, but also a contemplation of how labor, particularly women's labor in the media, very often gets erased um, and made invisible. And and what do you mean by that in context. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty clear on what I think you mean, but I'd love for you to explain it. Well, reality television um, is a really great place to think about issues of, of labor um, because it is a genre that is all about hiding its own labor. So we're never supposed to think about a reality show as being a television show. We're not supposed to think about the fact that there's producers and there's camera crews and that the cast members or the talent, you know, are are paid some of them millions of dollars a season and that they have a shooting schedule and they have people they do want to work with and they don't want to work with or all of those things, right? That we don't want to think about reality television as a job for the people who appear on it. Reality television, since its birth, has been about, oh, we just happen to catch people doing the things that they really do in real life, right? So that's how reality television gets presented to the audience. Um, And what I'm trying to do partly in this chapter is, is talk about this as work as talk about is is talk about reality television as a job that women are going to and that also they are fully cognizant of it as a job and therefore themselves as performers um on this particular medium and and so you have you know you do talk a little bit about the real housewives in this in this chapter you talk about love and hip-hop um we have all kinds of reality television all over the place and as you note, you know, a lot of times the labor in many ways is obscured, except in the ways that it is focused on in particular sort of venues um, where you are producing something um, like Project Runway. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and so they're the labor. But again, there's like all the back labor that you never see. Um, right that that sort of happens on the side and out of the camera lenses view. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so also in this context, you sort of talk a little bit here and there throughout the book with regard to enjoying um, these popular culture um, events uh, and, and sort of taking pleasure in them. Can you talk a little bit about that in context of reality television? 
Sure. Well, I want to also back up a little bit and think about sure. um, the, the the term that I think is always sort of swirling around um, our discussions of these things, even if we don't explicitly name it, which is the idea of a guilty pleasure. Um, yes. And a lot of times I hear people talk about reality television. I mean, whenever I, I do talks about reality TV or even just sort of have ca- casual conversations, um, people will always deny that they watch, but then they it's very clear that they do watch and then they sort of justify it by saying, oh, well, it's my guilty pleasure. Right. Um, and, you know, I always want to interrogate that because we only use the term guilty pleasure to refer to things aimed at women. And right. I, I want to historicize that that phrase. Right. It's it's not um, a politically neutral term to use. Um Guilty pleasure was used to describe like the melodramas of the 1930s and 40s, like the women's weepies, right? Um, uh, Guilty pleasure is used to describe soap operas, right? We use that idea as if it's it's a bad thing that we're not supposed to take pleasure in. Um, And I would also argue that some of the things that those other historical um, genres have in common is that they directly appeal to our emotions um, in, in a pretty straightforward unapologetic way. And there's something about that that we tend to think is a bad way of consuming film and television, right? Um, That something that's quote unquote good is supposed to only sort of exist in the realm of the intellectual, right? Um, That in our our brains, not necessarily in our hearts or in our emotions. Um, Also because emotions tend to be associated with the feminine, right? Um, And so with something like reality television, it's it's sort of like an exponentially bad object (laughs) for all of these reasons. Um, It deals in stereotypes. It's marketed towards women. It deals in the realm of the emotions. All of these things, which have come to define um, a, whatever a bad film or television show is, right? So I just wanted to sort of contextualize that. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me, for reality television, I also think there is a misconception that audiences only engage out of schadenfreude, right? The German term for taking pleasure in other people's misery, right? So the, the common... Um, argument that you hear is people watch reality television because they like to watch the folks on these shows make fools of themselves or act poorly. And I I would never deny that maybe that's part of the appeal, but that's just simply not enough to sustain an audience's attention and loyalty more than like maybe four episodes, right? So that can't account for some of these shows lasting as many seasons as they do. In order for that to work, or in order for for people to keep tuning in season after season after season, you have to have some kind of emotional buy-in with the characters that you're watching. You have to invest in them. You have to root for them. You have to feel emotionally connected to them in some way. And those are the things that we never tend to discuss when we are talking about the genre of reality television. And and that's what I think is, is I think you're absolutely right that, that the, the narrative, there is a narrative it's not the same kind of scripted narrative that you see mm-hmm. in a, you know, drama um, or CSI or whatever. Um, but there is a narrative that we become invested in. Yes. Um, that is it. And again, you, you're right. If, if it was just about seeing somebody like flame out, it would be done <laughs> in three episodes. Sure. Um, and, and so I, I was really in, I was very taken with your chapter on reality television in part because you do sort of push on this idea of, you know, in, enjoying the, yes. 
you know, experience of watching television and watching, you know, choosing Mm -hmm. what we're going to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so finally, I wanted to bring you to your last chapter um, on empire um, and this idea of possibly a false negative. Yes. So when Empire first premiered, I was super excited about it um, because it just seemed to be dealing in all of the terrain that, that I love, right? It's a, it's a soap opera. Um, it's, um, you know, incredibly melodramatic. It's, it's got its fair share of quote unquote, like ratchet representation. It's got actors that I love. It's like the first season at least was kind of like a musical. Um, so, you know, um, I was super excited about it. Um And what I started to notice was how much critics loved the show. And that sort of, you know, sent off some alarm bells in in my head because, you know, one of the things that I argue in the book is that sort of a a, a true negative text um, is usually it's critically derided, it's overlooked, it's dismissed. And that's not the type of attention that Empire was receiving. Um, And so... I, when I first was watching Empire, I was actually finishing the book manuscript and I just sort of assumed that the final chapter would be on Empire as a negative text. But then as all of the reviews started coming in and then when I was seeing um, panels of people talk about this as so incredibly progressive and this and the other, um, I thought, oh, I don't think this actually works. And um, I'm not saying that Empire is not progressive or isn't subversive, all of those things. But what I am arguing is that Empire is a show that is very much buffered by quality discourse. And for a book that's all about trying to sort of think about the frames uh, through which we view text, the frame through which critics were viewing Empire was as a quality television show. And yes, they acknowledge that it's soapy and it's over the top, but it was still very much buffered by, by this idea that it was on a major network, that it had, um, you know, Lee Daniels as one of the executive producers, that there were all of these Academy Award nominated or winning actors and actresses in the cast. Um, all of those things were sort of helped to elevate the show in a way that you just don't see happen with something like Love and Hip Hop or Basketball Wives or any of the other reality shows uh, that I talk about in the chapter before this one. And and so as, I mean, it's it's a shorter chapter because you were finishing the book and Empire hadn't been on that long, but yeah. as Empire has progressed, have you seen, because it has come in for some more criticism, mm-hmm. um, in the later seasons, have you seen a shift in some of that framing? Well, what I think is really fascinating is if you kind of go back to the argument I was making about Halle Berry, right? Which Mm -hmm. the critical discourse just seems to overpower like whoever she is or what she has to say about herself. Um, To me, we're in a really interesting moment in terms of empire because of the things that are happening with the cast outside of the show, right? So you have uh, Taraji P. Henson winning, was it was it a Golden Globe or an Emmy? Um, I can't remember um, which award show where she gave out cookies <laughs> when she when she won for her, her role of cookie. And then, of course, you know, the controversy um, around this um, um, alleged uh, attack of Jesse Smollett, right? Um, right. I, so what I would say is to sort of not directly answer your question is I'll be very curious to see how people now read the show based on 
these things that are happening, which is the argument I'm making in the book, is that th- the meaning isn't solely located in the text themselves. It's in how these texts circulate. So I'm really curious to see how critics start reading Empire partly based on these other things that are happening around the show. I'm also curious to see what happens um, in terms of how people are discussing Empire now that a show, you know, like Ryan Murphy's Pose has been on the air, right? Um, So when you now have um, more shows that are dealing um, with uh, queer characters of color, right? How does that sort of change our reading of Empire as a groundbreaking show that's doing this type of representation. Um, Thinking about those things in relationship to each other is sort of what I'm most interested in, in terms of looking at empire moving forward. And I think, you know, I I will be intrigued to see what you have to say as things evolve. Um, And (laughs) on, on that particular note, I'd love to know what you're working on now that this book has come out and is really fascinating. So right now, I am working on a project which is all about aesthetics and how Blackness becomes legible to audiences over time. Um, And so I'm doing some sort of basic film media studies analysis and looking at things like lighting and cinematography and narrative structure and how those work in relationship to Black images on screen. Um, So um, there were a lot of things in the book that I started talking about, but then didn't have the time to tease out. And that's partly forming the beginning of the next book. So um, a good example is uh, the end of Coming to America, uh, the wedding scene with Akeem and Lisa. Uh, Lisa wears a pink wedding dress. um, And that's because the cinematographer didn't know how to light Eddie Murphy's uh, dark brown skin and a white garment in the same frame. Um, And the solution that the costume designer comes up with is to put her in a pink wedding dress instead. And for me, that's a like that some people might say that that's sort of trivia, but I'm really fascinated in teasing out the implications of decisions like those, particularly because we know that film and television were not designed to, um, to represent black skin um, on like a very literal level, uh, lighting schemas um, and things like that were, were, de- were designed to optimize the beauty of white skin. So I, I'm, that's the next project. Um, we'll see where I go with that. Um, I also um, am just sort of giving myself a little bit of space to uh, decompress and like go to the movies and see some things and see what <laughs> piques my interest. <laughs> Which is totally reasonable, totally reasonable. Um, So where can somebody pick up a copy of a double negative? Sure. So if you happen to be in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, which is where I live, you can go to the Greenlight Bookstore um, and purchase it there. It's also available at Duke University Press. um, And of course, like, you know, everything else in the world um, is on Amazon.com. Of course. (laughs) Um, Of course. Uh, Raquel Gates, I am so pleased to have talked to you today about your book, Double Negative, The Black Image and Popular Culture. It was published in 2018 by Duke University Press. I hope you will come back on the New Books in Political Science podcast to talk about the next book when it's done. Yes, most definitely. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.